welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pod Ipsa Locator. My name is Mike Walsh, and I'm here today with our co host, John Kennedy. And we have a really exciting episode for you. Today is December 16th, and we're happy to have Mr. Lee Weiner, who was one of the defendants of the Chicago 7. And I want to thank you, Mr. Weiner, very much for coming here today. And I'm going to turn it over to John Kennedy to give you a, a proper introduction. Well, I, before I start and introduce Lee, I think we need to have a little bit of a history lesson for those of you who are listening who were either not alive or not cognizant enough to know what was going on in the late 60s. As you all do know from your history classes, the late 60s was the very turbulent era in our history. And 1968, and I'm almost 68 myself, was the most turbulent year of my lifetime. And that would include, believe it or not, 2020 and 2001. The history, as you all know, is that the Vietnam War was raging in 1968. The famous Battle of Quezon was fought. The Tet Offensive was going forward. There had been racial riots in many of the cities in, in 67 and, in fact, in 68. In 1968, in April, Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy was assassinated in June. And there was fierce opposition to the, uh, the Vietnam War. LBJ announced that he wasn't running for president. And in the midst of all these things, where there were issues about racial equality, women's rights, the war, and the youth movement, the Democratic National Committee announced that they were going to have their national convention in the city of Chicago. And many people descended upon Chicago to protest mainly the war, but other things as well, including members of the Youth International Party, the famous Yippies, led by Havi Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. And many of you know and should know that there was a, a large riot outside the convention. And a number of people were later indicted and then tried for conspiracy to riot. And one of the defendants of the Chicago 7 actually was the Chicago 8 because Bobby Seale was also a defendant. And his case was later dismissed. And many of you know about Bobby Seale because he was tried in our fair city of New Haven around the same time for a, on a murder charge. But the famous defendants were Lee, who's going to be with us here today, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, David Dellinger, John Freund's, and Rennie Davis, and of course, Bobby Seale. Lee and the others were indicted by the Nixon administration. Originally, there didn't appear there were going to be indictments, but then Richard Nixon became president in January of 1969, and his attorney general, George Mitchell, used a statute which had been enacted in uh, 1968 as part of the Civil Rights Act, which was an anti-riot provision in that Civil Rights Act, to use as part of the reason to indict uh, Mr. Weiner and the others. Uh, this resulted in the very famous trial, which happened occurred between September of 69 and February of 70, I believe, in the U.S. District Court in Chicago in front of Judge Julius Hoffman, the infamous Judge Julius Hoffman. We're going to be talking about him a little bit today. And most recently, this these events, particularly the trial, were memorialized in a film that's out on Netflix right now. I think it was released in late October. It's an Aaron Sorkin film and I've watched it and I know Mike, you've seen it as well. And it's really a, by my way of thinking, a very, very good dramatization of these events. It's a must see for those, in, in my opinion, interested in the history of this time period and also in trial law. 
And arguably, this is the most famous, some people would say, show trial in our, in, our, in our country's history. Mr. Weiner, I'm happy to say, was acquitted of all charges by the jury in that case. Yeah. <laughs> he must have had a great trial lawyer representing him. And he was later also acquitted of the many contempt charges which were leveled against him by Judge Hoffman. And we'll get into that. I think the first problem Judge Hoffman had was pronouncing Lee's name. We'll get back to that in a minute. Back in 1968, some 52 years ago, Mr. Weiner was a graduate of the University of Illinois. He'd had a number of other educational experiences. I'm going to go pass over those for the minute. He was working at that time as a community organizer in Chicago. Does that sound familiar? We know somebody else was a community organizer in Chicago. And uh, every day he was faced with some of the economic and racial injustices that made him a political activist. He has recently penned a memoir of these experiences during this time, aptly called A Conspiracy to Riot, came out in August. And I've read portions of it for our discussion here today. In the 50 plus years since the trial, he's continued to be a political activist, raised money for political causes, including B'nai B'rith and AmeriCares here in Stanford, as well as for some political campaigns. The one thing I, would, I was surprised at was that Mr. Weiner claimed that he was as surprised as the rest of the country when he was indicted in 1969. And I wanna ask him a little bit about that. When this trial and these events occurred, I was a 15 or 16 year old, and I have to say, this was my first experience of being interested in trials. It was on the front page of every newspaper and on every telecast literally every day. I know that's a long-winded introduction, but I just want to ask you, Lee, my first question is, how did you happen to become involved in this, in your activism back then and, and protest and, the, and your subsequent arrest? And also, as a secondary question, is the movie accurate or is it just a, a dramatic interpretation of what occurred. <laughs> okay, so my, uh, the answer of how I got involved is from my mother, I had bad friends. Um, <laughs> just, you know, just hung out with the wrong people. <laughs> I had, like everybody else around that table, had in the defendant's table in that trial, had been active politically since 1960, 1961, you know, 1962. Uh, none of us were virgins. Uh, everybody had been arrested. Everybody had been spent time in some jails. And there were people who were far more deserving than I was of uh, being indicted. Uh, but I had the uh, misfortune to be a loudmouth. And at one point, I was a loudmouth in front of somebody who was actually an undercover police officer. And he was very excited. And apparently, so was the grand jury. So my lawyer tries to teaching and demonstrating the use of incendiary devices to disrupt interstate track. Fantastically great job. The movie, which is the other part of your question, it's great. I won my heart because it includes a scene that actually I had written to him about uh, to be sure to include. And it's, it's the, so it has a Abby, Abby Hoffman, they asked in a press conference after some insane testimony by a city official when he was making a joke about, well, we want permits, but on the other hand, if you give us $100,000, we'll leave. Yeah. <laughs> and the city presented that as an actual, that was facts. And the guy kept saying, oh yeah, I, that was true. After that day, after that day of court, uh, it was often the case is we had press conferences, both at lunch and after the court. And after the court that day, a bunch of reporters were hounding Abby in relationship to, well, what was his price? Would he have taken, would he have taken $100,000 and left? And uh, it was televised. 
And what Ab said was, what was my price? What was my price for the revolution? He smiled kind of whimsically and said, my life. And in truth, that's what the trial was about. It was about our lives and the lives of the thousands and thousands of other people who were on the streets and tens and hundreds of thousands of people around the United States at that time who were opposed to the war, opposed to injustice, opposed to a culture which was demeaning to sexual roles which were horrible and punishing and demeaning and an entire culture as well as the war. So that was what was on trial. We thought it was, a, we called it a political trial, not a show trial, but it was. The movie actually does a nice job both showing and telling. Look, it's a movie. Is it completely accurate? No, of course not. So for example, in a, in a movie, I'm clean shaven and you know short hair. And the truth is I look like a maniac. Um, I had long hair. I saw hair. the pictures. You did look like a maniac. <laughs> if, if, I, if, I, if I had been on an elevator and the door had opened and you were out there trying to come in and you took one look at me and said, hey, no, maybe I'll wait for the next elevator. <laughs> <laughs> only have understood and would have been you're right, capable of doing anything but the movie does show and tell that resistance to injustice whether it's on the streets against brutal police or in a courtroom which is stacked seriously and significantly against us that that resistance is both necessary required and possible and that was the message that that trial conveyed to lots of people and it's one of the messages that movie conveys fairly well i think so, okay, Aaron, I forgive you for taking off my hair. Yeah, <laughs> and I should uh, tell you, Lee, that John faces that same kind of elevator experience that, <laughs> that you do quite often. But I have to ask you about a couple things. One, was the judge as bad as he looked in the movie? Worse. Was he really that bad? Worse. Really? Wow. Worse, yeah. You know, it, it's difficult to convey. In part, I don't know, people may not be familiar. In the same way, I'm not familiar with the people who have 24 million followers on TikTok. Yeah. Similarly, people might not be familiar with the cartoon character, Mr. Magoo, which was a long time ago. It's cartoons that were shown in movie theaters, maybe on TV. I don't remember. But anyway, the guy looked like Mr. Magoo. He was bald, <laughs> short, he was hunched, crinkled, and he was always sarcastic and punishing. He mispronounced not just my name, but poor Lenny Wineglass, who was one of our attorneys. I mean, how do you? And a seven-month trial, whatever however long it took, six, seven months, whatever it was, how do you not figure out one of the two defense attorneys' names? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's like being deliberately nasty. Um, so yeah, I mean, the people who played, there have been four movies, I think, on the trial, three or four, five, I don't know. And everybody plays a judge as a harsh, vindictive, nasty person, all true. But there was, there was a level of anger towards us and the attorneys that the folks who are trying to get their continuing legal education credit on this one. You simply do not want to be in front of a judge like that. No, I can imagine. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have been, yeah. Yeah, and what he did to Bobby Seale in terms of binding him and putting him in chains and gagging him, I mean, that was just really, that was outrageous. I mean, I assume all of that really did happen? Oh, yes. It happened for four days. Wow. Not just one day. Wow. Of course, the, the defendants did kind of push him a little bit, I, Lee. I mean, I was reading, you know, and I remember that Abby Hoffman started the trial by when the, when the case was introduced to the jury, he blew a kiss to the jurors and the judge took a little offense to that, as I yeah. recall. And then another day he put an obscenity on his forehead in front of the jury. No, that was not in, that was it during, in 68. But anyway, he wanted people to not, he wanted photographers to stop taking his picture. Okay. Um, look. 
what they put us on trial for, yeah. skills and the commitments that they accuse us of using to start a riot, we brought those skills and those commitments into the courtroom and we used them there to try to contest government's efforts to minimize us, denigrate our values, and erase the political content of our efforts. It's what governments do. People were dissent. They shouldn't have been surprised. It was a, a, an issue of timing. The Republicans wanted to show, I think it was John Mitchell actually, wanted to show a, that their law and order pledges were going to be serious. So they made the mistake of bringing eight people who very, very strong commitments and long histories of fighting back together into a courtroom at when the public sentiment against the war, lack of trust in the government was nearing a crest. So we weren't alone in that courtroom, that there were literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around the country who watched TV at night, uh, watched little cartoons uh, that were drawn by the court uh, folks, newspaper reporters. And we were out speaking three, four times a night around the country, all of us, except for Bobby who was in jail. So it was, it was like a full-time job. And it wasn't a fun job. It was a dangerous and difficult one. I was lucky, you all were, um, that the judge was so outrageous yeah. that the appellate court threw his the convictions out. The government, cleverly enough, said, mm, yeah, we didn't do so well that first time. We're not going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and a different appellate court then threw out the the most of the contempt charges, not all, but some, most. And the movie, you know, picking up on what you just said, the movie kind of picked up on what I guess you call a subplot that some of the defendants were very comfortable being in front of the camera, like Abby Hoffman and yourself. Like you were using this trial really to kind of get your message out and to continue your work. And then at least in the movie, they seemed, it seemed like there were a couple of the defendants that were a little bit more, I should say, nervous about the charges, like maybe Tom Hayden, or I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it seemed like there was a little, you know, maybe a little difference among the defendants. Of course there were differences among the defendants. Yeah. <laughs> there were eight of us. We were, we all kind of knew one another. The person who we knew the least was Bobby, but Jerry was one of my oldest friends. Um, I had known Abby for years. I had Lenny and Tom I had known from SDS times. I mean, it was like, it wasn't, yes, there were differences. What was Abby's line? We, we couldn't agree on lunch, much yeah. less <laughs> desire, uh, you know, to uh, have a riot. It, it, it was, we brought different perspectives. Ren saw, Ray saw this trial from the beginning as a platform from which he could, we could speak even louder about the war in Vietnam. Abs and Jerry, Abby and Jerry, and I guess he thought as an opportunity to confront a war and a culture and a government and an economic system, which was punishing and brutal and needed to be under the queue. I was gonna say destroyed, uh, but also it changed dramatically. How's that? That's better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was the young prosecutor a good guy or a bad guy? Because in the movie, bad guy. Bad terrible guy. guy. Terrible okay. guy. It was, it, was, it was a terrible guy. And he was not the lead prosecutor. I mean, he was, he was who he was. He, 
you know, the assistant and Tom Ferran was actually the lead prosecutor in the case. So, you know, the movie took liberals. It's, look, it's, it's Sorkin's politics is what Sorkin's politics are. And they came across in that trial. Most of right. it was all men. It's called to one another. Smart men talking to one another. Okay, he does dialogue great. And then, you know, like I, I, got, I got no knocks on that movie. I thought it was a great movie. People should see it. Same way people should buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a little question about that. You know, one of the things I touched on in the introduction of you was the fact that You've continued your activism over after that trial and over the course of your next 50 years. And in fact, your your yes. book particularly talks about activism and future of it. And so a lot of the defendants along the way seem to have lost their way a little bit. I don't want to say they sold out. That's too strong. But they, you know, they started doing things that were a little less uh, politically inclined, maybe more capitalistically inclined or politically inclined. And I just, how do you, take, how do you look I'll, at all that? I'll take that as a softball question, which I don't know. I'm not going <laughs> to knock anybody, but, okay. but, no, uh, but you know, what, what do you think about all that? I think the things that we learned in the early sixties from the civil rights movement was that it was that politics was not just about money and power, but it was a context in which one could act one's best self. One could find, define, and publicize and act towards one's most primary values, social justice. We all have learned that, and that's how we lived our lives. I was, unlike some of the other folks in the trial, Abby, Jerry in particular, but Tom as well a little bit, I had this fantasy that I would be able to go back and do the kind of community organizing I was had been doing all that time up till then. That was an insane uh, self-protective kind of thought, fantasy. Um, I had terribly underestimated what it meant, that degree of celebrity that we, we were gifted or punished by, punished with. I was fortunate. I had a bunch of, look, I'm, I'm white, male, heterosexual, cisgender. I have all kinds of educational credentials. And I was, and the, and the government and the country is very rich. And after a period of time, I was able to slip back in. It's true. Uh, I got a job in Washington working for the Carter administration and a leading Republican congressman denounced me on the House of, on the floor of the House of Representatives. But it was a different time. And rather than being cowed by that, the people I was working with brought me suddenly to all these meetings in the old executive office building next to the White House will show them even possible commies are still can be normal human beings. Reality was I wasn't able to get into that building without a personal escort because every time I went in, they kick your name into a computer and somebody's, uh, some government agency's flag. It was everybody from the Coast Guard to the FBI. But the point was made that, that I was, that other people were less capable of finding alternative ways of living their lives. Some people and people have different strengths and choose different paths. Dave Dellinger stayed political and stayed active for his entire life. And he was active and politically much longer than I was. We're talking about a guy who was a conscientious objector in World War II and yeah. organized a strike in prison against segregated meals in prison. So we're talking about a guy who was kind of like lived his life that way. So, so that, other folks, Tom became committed to electoral politics. 
Um, I'll tell you the truth. The first time I saw the movie, I, I did watch it a couple of times. I watched it straight, I watched it stone. Um, first time <laughs> yeah. I watched the movie, I thought Sorkin was being sarcastic towards Tom because in, in the try in the trial movie, um, Tom makes this whole he has the Tom character uh, change the world through electoral politics. That's without the power. And then he puts up at the end. He's like a state representative. I mean, give me a break. I mean, I, I don't know how many people are watching this, but I'll going to bet serious and significant money that the majority of you will not know the name of your state representative. Mm. So it's not, so I thought he was being sarcastic. Then I, okay. Then when I was stoned, I watched the movie all the way through. And I saw at the very end, he lists Tom as one of the three people he talked to the, about the movie, about if what was made. So I guess he was not being sarcastic. Good. He doesn't mention that Tom, but Tam ran for nomination for Senate and for governor, didn't make those. Uh, I didn't get those nominations, but Tom stayed political uh, all his life. Habs had a harder time. He ultimately killed himself, not alone among the friends that I had. Um, it was a it was a very very hard time, and it was a hard transition. I mean, you're talking. You know, I'm somebody who I have three generations of children, essentially suggesting that I also had some troubles trying to reestablish and reconnect to to the real world, or the real world that I founded in those years following. Jerry was really hounded out of New York City and got involved in human potential movement and, you know, EST and all that stuff. And he was trying to save himself. Yeah, everybody had to make money. Everybody had to live. And writing books or being supported by people who were politically supportive and also happened to be wealthy enough to provide some degree of support that those possibilities dried up, were not, were not real, or were hurtful. And so people found their own ways. You know, so I, I don't knock Jerry for what he did at all. He tried. He tried to live a life. He had children. He had, you know, Jerry's a good guy, friend. That's good so, to hear. So what do you think about what's going on now? I mean, coming from your background in the 60s, you know, and, and then you look at what's going on today, you know, what are your thoughts in that regard? Fucking fantastic. Look, the innermost here is a story. Lots of fathers talk to their sons and daughters about sports teams that they, as when they were kids, liked. You know, oh, Chicago Bears, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had a conversation with one of my sons this summer about the different kinds of gas that was used in Chicago in 68 and the gas that was used by the cops in Portland. So this stuff continues. I it, it was broader, more racially, I mean, more racially diverse. I mean, there are people, whites and blacks on the streets together this past summer that did simply did not occur in the late 60s. It just, that just simply didn't happen. And so that it suggested uh, that people learned more quickly than I did, more quickly than any of us did, that politics requires and allows for your active participation. And that active participation provides a grounding for who, a sense of who you are and who you can work with and who you can work with to help change the country for the better. So yeah, I think, I think the stuff that's been going on has been terrific. The one question I had, which is kind of a related question is, it seems like the youth movement, which was a big portion of the protest movement in the 60s is not really part of the deal right now. I mean, there are some youths who are in 
young people who are involved, but it's, it's more interest groups now than just general uh, youths who are upset. So how, how do you square all that? So for the last week, literally for a week so far, I've been trying to figure out TikTok. Oh, yeah. Um, I got a granddaughter who's pretty good at it, if you need help. Okay, so look, I mean, <laughs> when you start talking about 18-year-olds who have 20 million followers, right? Right. You're talking about uh, a scale of communication, which is, I mean, it's sure beyond me. And as I'm saying, I'm spending time trying to figure it out. You know, I, I get TikTok because people send it to me through Twitter or something like that. But youth culture includes a Black Lives Matter. It includes people who are mobilized against uh, racist discrimination against immigrants. I mean, it includes people who are mobilized against people who discriminate in terms of gender. So, I mean, it's so that there's this huge collection of people who include millions and millions of people watching TikTok, but there are also millions of people who are engaged in work that touches their heart and helps protect people, reaches for justice. Before the election, I would say to people that, look, electoral it's difficult to argue about electoral politics. It has to have a priority. But I would say to people, and I say them now, is that there are certain battles that the election has an end date. You know whether you won or lost. There are certain battles, uh, LGBTQ rights, immigration, um, citizenship, um, sexism, racism. Those battles, they destroying capitalism. Those are not, those are battles that, are, that don't have a necessary end. You, know, you don't know whether you won or lost. You just have to keep on the, keep in the front. So that I was lucky, I was able to work for the Anti-Defamation League, politicians I liked, nonprofit organizations that I thought were doing good work. The work was basically ameliorative. It was not, was not able to create the level or degree of changes that I, we had all hoped for, but things are certainly different now, better in many, many ways, harder and harsher. We were not the only ones to learn that you could organize around your social values. People on the right also learned that. We, our 60s was one set of values. There were other people who decided their values of religion, God, traditional values needed to be defended. And they also organized in relationship to their values. So that I don't deny that we had a hand in the polarization that occurs, that it, it, it dominates our political lives now. We're not the sole source of that. I believe the country's moving forward, not as quickly as I would like and not necessarily always in the direction that I would like, but surely things are getting better for some people in some places. It's an interesting point that you made about the polarization. I can tell you that in the Kennedy household in the 60s, guys like you made for some polarization between my father, my very conservative father and my older sisters and myself, I'll tell you that. But I don't know, I don't have any more questions. I don't know if Mike, if you have any more questions or. You know, just that last point you were making, Lee, you know, you were talking about a lot of different interest groups kind of coming together and forming, you know, kind of a, a, a one movement against something. And it seems like, you know, with regards to the Chicago back in the, you know, 1968 at the time of the convention, you had a lot of different groups. And I'm just wondering, what was it actually like, like being in the park? It just give us, an, you know, give us your impression to the, obviously you have the threat of violence from the police, and what was it like those days? It would have been nice if it had only been a threat. <laughs> uh, look, we knew, we knew that the possibility of violence, the police, I mean, the mayor and the, and the cops made that. In my earlier work, 
as a community organizer in essentially the same neighborhood, near the same neighborhood that Lincoln Park was in, near West Side. I had once worked for the Mayor's Commission on Youth Welfare. I actually knew some of the command officers that were in the park. And one evening, I guess it was Friday or Saturday, I don't remember which, before the convention started, before things really got tough in the streets and in park, I actually went with a couple of other people to the command thing and said, look, we'll, you know, we'll help move people out of the park. We'll walk in front of you. And the police officers that I knew wouldn't look at me in the eye. So it was clear that they were, they had gotten different orders other than cooperation. The park was sometimes great and you get stoned, it was fine. Um, you know, um, I met people there then who I have known ever since the rest of my life. Look, I probably spent, I spent as much time in the park as I later spent with lawyers, okay? Yeah. That, is, that is, that is, I mean, the trial was seven months, six, seven months long. There were other, other, I mean, I had a particularly spectacular divorce in an open court. That would really be tough to do that. You know, and, and there were other arrests and other issues. So you guys spend a lot of time, your time with lawyers. Some of that time is smart, good, interesting, fun, heartwarming, sometimes a sense of tremendous accomplishment, reaching for justice for your clients. Sometimes it's scary and a sense of responsibility and obligation. And it's sometimes it's boring and sometimes it's just too much. And if you don't have a goddamn drink, you're going to shoot yourself. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, that's what it was. It was all those things. It was life. It was life at a high pitch. And I was fortunate, as I've said, to be able to live my life engaged in a politics which have over and over again allowed me to experience moments that were life-changing and positive and working with people who had similar experiences and were similarly blessed with being able to work in ways to help bring justice, greater justice in America, that make, make this country a better place. It's being called being patriot. It's, I mean, my family was not necessarily so thrilled yeah. for a long time, uh, shock, but you know, it worked out mostly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Lee. And uh, Lee's book again is a conspiracy to riot. I think it's ah, something. You can get it on Kindle. It's inexpensive. It's on Kindle, and oh, yeah. uh, I, we appreciate your time today, Mike. Anything else? I just want to thank you too, Lee, uh, for giving us kind of a window into your experiences and into your thoughts. I mean, it really, uh, really is fascinating. You seem like a very fascinating person. I want to thank you very much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to do so. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org.